Hello, beloved survivors. I'm Autumn Brown, and this is How to Survive the End of the World, a podcast about surviving apocalypse with grace, rigor, and curiosity. I'm recording in this moment in my closet inside my apartment in South Minneapolis, about 15 blocks away from the corner of Chicago and 38th, where George Floyd was murdered by police two nights ago. His murder was documented on video, a video I haven't watched and probably won't. It's a chilling reminder that while taking video makes it harder for the state to hide its murders, it won't stop them in the act. The truth is that we don't know how to stop the police from killing us. The painful fact that Black folks live with every day is that if they come for us, we most likely won't survive. We make plans for what we will do. We teach our children what to do and what not to do. But we know that most of those plans don't matter. And we wonder. When I think about the many experiences I had being racially profiled when I lived in rural Minnesota, what I remember most was my body's survival response. I would make myself smaller, pitch my voice higher to sound more childlike and helpless, to sound less powerful. Always, I would drive away in tears, grateful to be alive. Never did I feel like I could fight back. I don't think I really know what it looks like to secure myself, to protect myself. As soon as we started planning this mini-series, I knew I wanted to have a conversation about the complex question of arming and protecting ourselves inside of violent conditions, the conditions of apocalypse that we most fear. But unfortunately, this is not a distant fear. This is a fear and challenge that many of us live with every day, whether it is those of us who are targets of state violence inside the occupied territory of the United States, or whether it is our kindred who are fighting for their freedom around the globe. Today's conversation will be more narrowly focused on the challenges of securing and protecting ourselves in a U.S. context. It was actually really challenging to find someone who was willing to have this conversation with me. And I am so grateful to be in conversation with Rashid McCall, who heads up the Georgia-based firm Opposition Research, which investigates police killings. In addition to his investigative work, Rashid is a firearms and self-defense instructor. Rashid was born into a revolutionary family. His parents were members of the Black Panther Party. And he was raised in California and then eventually in Georgia as his family was torn apart by COINTELPRO and his community destroyed by the intentional introduction of guns and drugs in the 70s and 80s. Rashid himself entered social justice and movement work through student organizing in Georgia. Later, he was recruited into security and investigation work by his mentor. And over the last 20 years, he has participated in and supported investigations of many of the most high-profile police killings in the South, including investigating the 2016 killing of 26-year-old Jamarian Robinson, 
who was murdered by a police task force that shot him dozens of times. Rashid's work involves investigation, discovery, surveillance, and he specializes in criminal defense and negligence investigations. You're going to hear more about Rashid's extraordinary work in a moment, but first, a content note for this episode. This episode intentionally does not present a binary argument for or against arming ourselves. Instead, we explore the history and contemporary reality of accessing firearms and other forms of self-protection and self-defense within the particular context of Black liberation. And there's a reason we structured the conversation this way. We don't want to slip into the false binary of violence versus nonviolence in this conversation. We accept that we live under fundamentally violent conditions. And those who enact that violence include legal and non-legal actors working on behalf of the state. We're not here to argue the pros and cons of a nonviolent strategy inside the context of a police state, nor are we here to talk about armed insurrection against the state. We wanted to dig specifically into the complexity of arming and protecting ourselves and securing our communities inside the reality of this violence. This conversation is as much about the history of Black people being armed as it is about the future of Black people keeping themselves safe and getting themselves free and how that intersects with the future of all people who are living under oppression. Rashid's work represents a particular and often invisible position within the spectrum of response to state violence. So I invite you to listen with that complexity in mind. The gun was used in the civil rights movement, you know, by the deacons of defense, the Marcus Garvey movement, um, uh, Robert F. Williams, you know, he formed one of the uh, earliest uh, black gun clubs affiliated with the NRA. But, you know, when the state is unable to or just not willing to protect yourself, I mean, the question becomes, who do you rely on? to prevent grave bodily harm or death. And if you can't rely on law enforcement to do their job, you know, the other option is to be lynched. The other option is to be harmed. The other option is for your family to be harmed. Or, you know, you pick up this tool, learn how to use it, you know, learn how to defend yourself. And I think, you know, Ida B. Wells, um, you know, is one of the best teachers um, of that as she was an anti-lynching um, activist. And she once said that the Winchester rifle, uh, which was the so-called assault rifle of her time, which was the late 1800s, the Winchester rifle should find a place of honor in every black person's home. And that was in response to her seeing, you know, all these lynchings 
after Reconstruction, you know, leading into the new century. And then even when we look at examples like, you know, um, Harriet Tubman, uh, the Moses of the South, and how she used this tool to um, free her family members, to free other slaves on plantations. Um, most people don't understand that history because we're not taught about this history in elementary school. We're not taught about this, this, this history in middle school or even high school. And depending on what college you go to, you're not going to learn about where you come from, that your people are responsible for great civilizations and empires that stretch beyond the cotton fields. What you will learn about is you were a slave and that people fought for your right, rights not to become a slave. And now you are a worker. <laughs> Stay in your place. There's an interesting component too where it feels like you know, as you're as you're narrating the history of the tool, one of the things that I'm noticing is how the history that we're taught about our own process of freedom and liberation, the the presence of the gun is erased from that history, right? <laughs> like, whether, you know, and, and, and the violence, the I both the obviously we know about how much the the way that we we and our children have been taught this history in the public education system and private education system in the US typically erases most of the violence that white folks are doing against black folks. But also what I'm hearing is the erasure of the, the tool as an actor, as a, like a character in the story that <laughs> is part of our story too. Right. Right. <laughs> you know? right. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, to sum it to 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 sum it up, you know, we have to have an appreciation for our history. And unfortunately, if 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 you're not curious, if you don't go looking for our history, it's it's not clear and present. Um, and I think that that mm -hmm. is invaluable. And I think that that you know is is one of the legacies um, that I bring to this conversation um, is this institution that we build at Georgia State University. The Department of African American um, Studies. You know, hundreds of students have had the opportunity to learn more um, about their history, not only students of African descent, but students of all ethnicities. And I think that that is important um, as it relates to the uh, fabric of America and, you know, how ultimately the story of America will be told. Um, you know, un unfortunately, you know, we are made to fear um, the gun. And, you know, it's an intergenerational fear uh, because we don't understand it. We don't understand where it comes from. And we don't understand how we don't understand the critical roles, uh, you know, that it play, that, that it has played in our history. So. It's very important. It's very important. And that's why, you know, education is a foundation of 
the majority of the programs, um, classes, courses, uh, clinics that I teach, I'll always throw in some history and provide uh, resources and reference material as it relates to the gun um, and specifically our ethnicity because uh, if you, you know, you're not going to get it anywhere else. You will not get it anywhere else. So right, right. that's a part of my curriculum. Right. That makes sense. And, you know, and I think there is a, there is a piece of this too, that has to do with imagination, right? That like our imaginations are typically really governed by the, by the creative content that we take in. And that creative content, you know, is produced by a culture that has its own motivations, you know, for putting together whatever it is that we see and what we don't see. And what I think about like the content that we take in that features people of our ethnicity with guns, it's right. not like, it's not inspiring. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, it's negative. It's very negative. It's, you can, yes, it's think, very negative. Yeah, it's like, I think it's hard for people to imagine themselves um, being heroic with a gun um <laughs> so right. well um, we're, we're definitely so, in the yeah. process of, of changing that that narrative so right right yeah mm. we are actively working um, to to change the um that narrative primarily you know there, there there's different organizations and formations um all across the country that are working diligently to change that narrative uh, one of those organizations is the National African American Gun Association. You know, mm-hmm. we have over um, 50,000 members, over 70 chapters, not one in each state, but all throughout the country. Um, and this is a movement that is embracing, you know, the gun as a tool that recognizes that not only is it used for defense of ourselves, our family, our community, but we also use it, you know, to put food on the table. And in some cases we use it for recreation, you know, um, within that organization, I'm the director of competitive shooting. So my responsibility is to recruit, train, equip, and field uh, competitive shooters in this subculture that we call the shooting sports. And whatever your interest is as it relates to firearms, whether it's defensive, whether it's uh, precision that's hitting targets out to 100 yards plus, or whether it's recreation, um, there is a sport Um in this field for you, you know, most people don't realize that the shooting sports exist. And we know that, you know, with mm. regards to who we are as a people, every sport that we get involved with, we dominate. Uh, we take over, <laughs> there's over, there's over a dozen Dang. shooting sports in the Olympics. And who is, who, who's dominating that right now? Mm. That's a question. Uh, well, I, huh? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right now. But the, I'm guessing the, it's not black people. <laughs> right. 
right right now the uh, the 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 creators of this technology is dominating those sports. You know, the Chinese uh, are dominating those sports. But oh, you know, I'm responsible for creating a new wave of shooters who um, will ultimately um, dominate the field of shooting sports. Who will launch careers as shooters. You know, they start they they start off making a hundred thousand dollars a year. You can negotiate you know, the patches that you put on your jersey. We don't have any ammo manufacturers. We don't have any major gun manufacturers. We don't have individuals who make the holsters or the other accessories uh, in, di- in this industry. And it's a, it's a multi-billion dollar industry. And they have not seen us yet in terms of um, inventions, in terms of you know, actual shooters, uh, in terms of black owned gun ranges and all the support mechanisms necessary, uh, to support that industry. So this is a very exciting time, uh, to learn about this tool in a very responsible way through education, uh, through training and ultimately through the shooting sports. Uh, children can go to college for free on a shooting uh, scholarships. There's so many opportunities that you would never imagine um, exist as it relates to responsible firearm ownership. And you wouldn't know it exists until, you know, you enter this world that you never knew um, Mm -hmm. was out Mm -hmm. there. So, I'm, well, I'm a, and it, oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say I'm a, I'm a proud member of the National African American um, Gun Association, and for anyone who is interested, uh, you know, in this art, in this discipline, you know, I would encourage you to get in contact, you know, with us. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, I mean, of course, just like any. Um, institutional barrier. It's no accident, right? That like there's an absence of uh, there's an absence of black folks in this particular um, area of recreational sport, right? Right. And I think about um, I think about that about the sort of the the tension that exists there, both in terms of the intergenerational fear, as you named it, of of guns and of arms and also the, the very, uh, the historical reality of what happens to black people when they arm themselves in this country. Right. And, um, and I think that, you know, I think, I think inside of social movement spaces, I know that that's a tension also that people are holding around this question of, how do we secure ourselves? How do we defend ourselves? How do we protect ourselves when we know what happens to people who arm themselves and try to fight back against these systems, systems of white supremacy, systems of patriarchy, systems of capitalism, you know, whether the actors in those systems are acting on legal or extra legal authority, they still get away with killing us. Right. Um, and I'm wondering about, about, you know, knowing that you do a lot of this instruction in social justice spaces, 
I'm wondering if you're witnessing any shifts in terms of how comfortable people feel engaging in this practice, how comfortable people feel even engaging in the conversation or considering it as a practice, especially since, you know, so much of the last 50 years of social movements have really been informed by like, you know, nonviolence as a practice, nonviolence as a particular ideology for, for making social change. I'm curious to know, like, if you're witnessing a shift or a change in the way people are thinking about um, securing and protecting ourselves in relationship to the ideology of nonviolence. Well, I mean, I think we definitely agree um, with the whole philosophy of nonviolence, right? We are put into a defensive um, posture um, mm. when we have to use these tools. We're not using these tools to go out and, you know, rebel and to, you know, shoot people down. We're only using these tools to defend our our lives, the lives of our family, the lives of our community, when we have no other choice. You know, our, the, the best fight is the fight that you don't have to have to fight or have to be engaged in. But at the point in which mm. you're backed into a corner, at the point in which you cannot escape, do you cower and die or do you fight for your life? And that is mm. the question here. There's no question about our nonviolent legacy. King was smart. He had guns all around him. He had the deacons for defense. Right. right? right. He had other organizations and formations that were committed to his survival. He had those people around him. He was denied, right, a concealed carry permit. But no one talks about that. No one talks about going into King's house and there'd be a gun in every nook and cranny around his house. He was an advocate of nonviolence, but at the same time, at the point in which King would have been backed into a corner, there was no way he was going to cower and die. He was going to fight for his life. And we take the same posture. We understand you know, the methods and the ideology around nonviolence. And, you know, to some extent, we agree with that. But at the at the point in which we have to defend ourselves, at the point in which we are standing on uh, grounds in which we either have to fight or we're going to die, what are you going to do? I'm going to fight to try to save myself, to try to fa- save my family and my community if it comes down to that. If that's, if, if that's the last resort, right? Mm-hmm. And we have to understand that. We have to have courage. You know, one of the countries in this hemisphere that found themselves on this, on this ground, right, on, on, you know, having to make this decision was Haiti. They mm-hmm. made a decision to fight, to protect themselves, their families and their communities. And as a, as a result, they won that fight and they liberated themselves from the mightiest army in the world at that time. Yes or no? 
We will be back with more of my conversation with Rashid in a moment, but first, an offering. So many of us have lost beloveds to COVID-19, and so many of us will, and we want to create space to honor those losses here on the show. So in the final episode of the series, we're going to read aloud the names of those who have been lost, the names that have been shared with us. If you wish to send the name of a loved one, please email it to us at howtosurvivepod at gmail.com. And please do include guidance on how to correctly pronounce your loved one's name. Grieving together is part of how we survive and how we remember life. We hope you will let us hold a part of your grief. Okay, back to my conversation with Rashid. What I'm really hearing and what you're saying is that, like, that there's a false dichotomy that's set up between the idea of arming ourselves and protecting ourselves and the, and the ideology of nonviolence, right? That, like, we tend to talk about it as an either or. And what I'm hearing and what you're saying is that it's not an either or from your perspective, that it's like, um, that it's a, we're using all of the tools at our disposal to ensure our survival. And it, one of the, one of the things that um, is percolating for me is, um, you know, we've been running this series of this mini series on apocalypse survival skills. And in one of the previous interviews we did um, with this amazing group of folks who do these um, survival, survival training in the outdoors and they talk about, they were talking about the fact that um, when threat conditions are overwhelming, one of the things that you have to train yourself to do is like give yourself a permission slip to act in ways that you wouldn't otherwise necessarily act, to perhaps be, be more aggressive or do something that's more extreme than what you would like typically see yourself as being capable of but that you only do that under conditions where the threat is so overwhelming that you have to act in that way in order to ensure your survival. And I, so I'm hearing a connection between that sort of survival skills training and what you're talking about here too, in terms of this idea that, you know, we didn't create these conditions, just like we didn't even create this technology, but these are the conditions we're living inside of. And this is the technology that's available. Um, and it sounds like one of the things that you really orient to as well is is the discipline of martial arts as a part of that process of of disciplining and training yourself, right? Absolutely. In terms of being able to understand when has a threat become overwhelming, right? <laughs> or like when 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 has a threat come to the point where like acting on these skills would be necessary? Um, and I think. And I think, too, that like we, you know, we live in a society where, you know, again, I think that this is around like, I think this is primarily a function of capitalism, but capitalism really sells us on the concept that like what we should be seeking is to feel at ease, right? And that we should be buying, <laughs> buying, buying, buying things to make us feel more at ease, right? Right. And that, that uh, the ideal the ideal lifestyle is one in which we're experiencing everything as easy and convenient, which is very, which is a really convenient where, way for people to feel if we want people to do nothing. 
right? Right, absolutely. <laughs> to, to do nothing mm. about their own liberation. And I, I think what you're describing is a really different path that is about, you know, uh, opting for discipline over convenience, operating for a reality-based assessment of the conditions over ignoring the conditions, you know, and cowering. Yeah, you know, um, I think it's important, you know, for us to understand that self-defense is a human right. And I talk about this all the time in my class, the difference between civil rights and human rights. And the ability for societies to try to legislate your human rights away to the point that you feel helpless without them. We are our own first responders, right? Mm -hmm. The police have no duty to protect you. They have no duty to protect you. By the time that you are a victim, you know, of a crime, whether it's by the hands of the police or uh, others, it's too late. It's too late. So you have to be your own first responder. You have to operate with the sense that your life is valuable. And Mm -hmm. at the point in which someone is trying to take your life, you have a duty, you have a human duty, you have a human right to protect yourself. You have a human right to protect your family. And ultimately, if it comes down to you protecting your community, you have to do that as well. We have an obligation to do so. We are the dreams of our ancestors. We are continuing a struggle that they began And we're only able to to continue that struggle because we we are willing to exercise our human rights. If not, we would would have been a casualty to history, Uh to genocide. Uh And that is not who we are. That is not who we are. So the human right to Mm self-defense is human. It's not civil. And that right is extended to everyone who lives, who breathes on this earth, regardless of ethnicity. Hmm. I really appreciate you for just putting it so clearly and, 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 so eloquently, you know, um, and especially appreciate that distinction between civil rights and human rights, because I think that it's, it's not one that we make very often anymore. And I think in part because our, our government here in the U.S. really got off the human rights train at a certain point. (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, were they ever on the human yeah. rights train? I mean, for real, they were not really. <laughs> but, I mean, wow. Um, yeah, but, but you know, there were some real specific moments where it's like, oh, you, you could have signed on to this thing that all these other countries signed on to, and we didn't. Right. Um, so, um, yeah. So I think, and I, I appreciate that too, as re- like because it kind of also redefines like what is the ground on which we're fighting and what is it we're fighting for? Because I think absolutely it's so myopic in terms of what we're fighting for because we're fighting for these really narrow wins, you know, and it makes it hard to see that the field of possibility is so vast, and and the the field of the field of possibility is as vast as our imaginations, but we have to grow our imaginations, right. right. In order to be able to see like, what would it look like to feel secure? You know, I, as a, as a mixed race, black woman, I can't imagine feeling secure and safe. Like it's really hard for me to imagine feeling fully secure and safe in my body in this world right now. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's kind of cool to imagine like how differently I might feel about that if I had, if I grew some of my skill sets, right? If right. I grew skill sets around like protecting my own body, you know, that that might actually change the field of what I can envision. Absolutely. And, and mm-hmm. transferring those skill sets to the next generation, because these are skill sets that you could go anywhere, anywhere in the world or the universe for that matter, uh, and be proficient. You know, my worst fear is us exporting this madness uh, that we're experiencing here on Earth out into the universe. Right. I do not want that <laughs> like to happen. Aliens, do not come right. here right now, please. <laughs> right. We, we can nip this in the bud. You know, we can all get along. Um, but you know, we, we have to, we, we have to, we, we, we have to kill some of these old paradigms, Mm. um, and we have to imagine what a better world looks like with each new generation. And I think that, you know, uh, we have failed to do that. Um, but I think that there's hope. I think that, you know, at some point in time, um, we were, we will grow older. Um, we will, you know, become ancestors and the lessons, uh, not only the historical lessons, um, but, you know, the practical lessons that we leave for the next generation is going to be important. The skill sets that we leave for them, um, is going to be very important. And the question becomes, you know, would those skill sets be based on our civil rights or would those skill sets be based on, you know, our human rights? And what mm-hmm. will that look like? You know, because they will be responsible for transferring those skill sets to, you know, the, the next generation. And it's, it's just so important for us to get this right. Um, because again, we, we have to continue, uh, you know, this progress of marching forward because I don't believe in going backwards. I don't believe in making America great again. Uh-uh. That is not an option. <laughs> that is definitely not an option. 
Oh, Rashid, thank you so much. I the what this is a really powerful, beautiful place to to close, and I and I want to be mindful of time as well. I know how late it is, and um, I just I'm so grateful. I feel like just between this conversation and the first conversation that you and I had, I've just learned so much from you. Um, I really wish that I could take one of your classes. <laughs> you know maybe someday oh absolutely um, we're, we're yeah. building them out on zoom now so that everyone will have the opportunity to uh experience what we're doing and how we're um changing um mindsets and educating people um wow. all across the nation so i would definitely send uh you, you an invitation to you know our next class and maybe you can give out um, some classes to your listeners. I'll be more than happy to, you know, facilitate some special classes for them. Wow. That'd be so cool. Yeah. I would, I would love to be able to do that. I think that like, it's just right on time, you know, it's really, really on time with like the, the conversations that we need to be having, the skills that we need to be building, the fears that we have to be confronting in one another and in ourselves, you know, it's like, the world is is conditions are changing rapidly right now. Rapidly. We are not ready. <laughs> yeah. We're not ready in many of the ways that we need to be ready. And we have a very short amount of time in which to get those skills. Um, Absolutely. So. And I and I would challenge, you know, uh, you know, the other folks that you bring on to interview, you know, to to look at the skill sets that they have and see how they can be adapted uh, so that you know, we could take advantage of the technology that we have at hand because you're absolutely right. You know, uh, six to 12 weeks ago, um, the world looked a lot different than it does now. And we have to, we, we definitely have to adapt and we definitely have to, you know, pass on what we have um, to ensure that, you know, our, our people continue to prosper and survive. If yeah. not, you know, we don't, we don't have a choice in this. Yeah. 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 Oh, thank you so much. I'm just, I'm beaming. You can't see me, but I'm beaming. <laughs> I'm so, I'm so grateful to you for having this conversation with me. And um, especially, you know, I know just how packed your schedule has been. And so making time so late at night to, to talk, I really appreciate it. It's, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This episode is dedicated to the life of George Floyd. May he rest in power. Thanks for tuning in to the Apocalypse Survival miniseries of How to Survive the End of the World. We have one more episode coming which will be focused on the lessons learned from the series and from this moment of collective grief. How to Survive the End of the World is on Twitter and Instagram at End of the World PC. We're also on Facebook at End of the World Show. You can make a sustaining donation to our show by visiting our page at patreon.com slash endoftheworldshow. We're very grateful to all of you who have continued donating during this incredibly tight economic moment. And we want to offer special gratitude to our new patrons. We see you. We love you. We appreciate you. 
Another incredibly helpful thing you can do to help our show sustain itself is to write us a review on Apple Podcasts if you are an iPhone person. How to Survive the End of the World is produced and edited by the incomparable Zach Rosen. Music for today's show comes from Tunde Alaniran, Mother Cyborg, Kayla Drew, and Circus Marcus.